My name is Emma Kinema, she, her. Um, you know, I'm a former game developer and tech worker, and now I'm a staff organizer with CWA, which is the Communications Workers of America, um, organizing in tech, in games, and digital media. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you could start by just kind of explaining how you got involved in this, how long were you even, in, you know, like an engineer, but not volunteering to do the organizing um, bit on the side? Because people listening to this might not have, you know, read the articles I have uh, about your work. Sure. Um, yeah. um, sure. Okay. I have been engaged with, you know, the labor movement for about nine or 10 years, I would say. Um, you know, first in a very minor way, just like having gotten organizer training from uh, a couple locals in my uh, hometown and volunteering my time with the locals um, that I met through actually electoral work. Um, in college, I got very involved with on-campus work and particularly supporting service workers who were organizing. Um, from there, you know, I, I, I've been involved with a number of things, uh, prison labor organizing, service worker organizing, teachers, um, you know, sex worker organizing, and then uh, as I went into the games industry in particular, that's when you know, my actual work started merging with labor organizing a little bit more. Um, you know, the industry as a whole, completely unorganized, right? Um, and so it you know, seemed a bit daunting, the notion of you know, trying to organize where there is no culture of it. There's very little knowledge of what it would even mean in practice. But um, yeah, in 2018, myself and many others kind of managed to catch some kind of spark and fan it a little bit into a flame. Um, you know, we founded Game Workers Unite, which was kind of like a loose collection of people from many different cities and, and kind of countries around the world trying to organize in the industry. Um, I was also involved with some tech organizing at the time that was outside of the games industry. Um, and, you know, I was involved with like the Riot Games walkout and things like that, um, if folks are familiar. And uh, yeah, I, you know, was brought on to CWA to help organize, you know, tech games and digital media. I've been doing that now for just under two years, actually. Um, and we've organized, you know, multiple units. Some, I think roughly 2000 tech workers have been organized into the union in the last like year and a half, two years, um, which is really exciting. How, how many organizations, I'm just curious, how many organizations is that spread over? Organizations as in like particular or, companies? I guess, yeah, how many companies, yeah. And also, yeah, yeah I, I have more follow-up questions. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I don't actually know. I would say like somewhere around like 10 to a dozen. Um, you know, we've got folks at a range of different companies from like kind of more typical software engineering companies to kind of social justice uh, kind of campaigning platforms like change.org. Um, we've got startups, we've got workers at Alphabet, you know, the vast majority of these people I'm talking about have collective bargaining rights. Um, the exception being right now Alphabet, where we do have members um, and they do organizing and they have, you know, built up resources and staff and all kinds of things, but they don't have collective bargaining rights, at least not, you know, yet. Um, we don't see it as being mutually exclusive with, you know, more typical uh, organizing towards, you know, actual unit certification and collective bargaining. But uh, yeah, and, and it's also worth noting that we've had lots of people actually organized in CWA in the tech industry and in technical roles for decades, like back into the 70s and 80s even. Um, some of the actually like 
back when you know software engineering didn't even have a very well codified identity, we had software engineer uh, academics uh, and researchers who were organized into CWA through our public sector organizing, right? Just decades ago. So like at the birth of the kind of modern software industry, we had people involved with that in our union. And of course, it's worth noting that, you know, the vast bulk of our membership is, you know, telecommunications and media workers, um, which, you know, make the absolute infrastructure that the entire tech industry is built off of, right? Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's also worth noting, I'd say, that these days, you know, finance uh, entities really don't refer to separate tech media uh, in telecom industries. They refer to them as a single entity because they're all so bound up. And so I would argue our union is like the most natural fit for organizing in tech because we're in the same industry. Like a good example would be um, AT&T is the employer where we have organized the most CWA members at on the scale of tens of thousands of people, right? Ranging from you know, call center techs to uh, you know, engineers and technicians and maintenance people, you know, linemen, things like that. Um, that company has telecommunications infrastructure. It has media infrastructure. It has game studios, right? It has hardline, you know, uh, fiber optic infrastructure. It uh, has software engineering uh, sites and they're not separate. This is all one giant industry. And so our, our organizing experience is very deep actually in this industry. What's new is actually building towards any meaningful density in software engineering specifically. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So a distinction that we've kind of um, that I've learned about while working on this is the idea of like there used to be and correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here. There used to be trade unions, which were like essential or the history of unions kind of stretches back from when it was essentially guilds of people that performed a specific task. Um, to more, I forget what the name of this would be, but like a workplace union. So when you're talking about organizing AT&T, you're getting all workers of different, like totally different um, disciplines and practices to unionize in one place. Is that is that correct, roughly? You're, and then they're all close. Okay. Um, so uh, and there's industry unions. I'm getting hit. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're close, like the uh, formation of what, what we would refer to as like the modern labor movement, like the modern incarnation of unionism, it does come out of the kind of guild uh, phenomenon uh, where, you know, pre-industrialization and, and early industrialization, you know, people were organized by, you know, the craft or trade they had. Um, and usually not necessarily just uh, organized for the sake of, uh, for instance, like getting paid more or anything like that. Often it was actually more about like, in a sense, like small business partnerships for small time craftspeople, which, you know, uh, isn't necessarily like a worker who's employed by someone else, right? So it's a bit different. As industrialization, industrialization, as industrialization kind of uh, builds up and, and becomes more widespread and sophisticated, we have people who have no, you know, ownership over the means of production, like a, a craftsperson, guildsperson, whatever, right? That's where you get the modern like craft unionism is the term where people 
might still be organized by specific discipline or role, right? The, you know, um, you know, a, a painter might have his painter's union and the carpenters might have their carpenter's union, right? Maybe they all work together even on the same projects, but they're in their different unions by craft, right? This happened throughout the, you know, the last end of the 1800s into like the 1910s, 20s. In the 20s and 30s, <clears throat> we see the emergence of a new type of union organizing, at least in the United States, uh, called industrial unionism. It's very similar, right? Similar approaches to organizing, similar issues around which one might organize. The difference just being we organize wall to wall, meaning if we're organizing a certain company, we're gonna organize as many of the job types within it as possible. Um, the idea being it's uh, a much, much more uh, social justice oriented uh, approach to union organizing. It's more inclusive and more powerful form of union organizing because certain workers in a workplace might not have a lot of leverage like janitors, but certain technicians on a, a manufacturing line in the same factory might have a supreme amount of power. So organizing them separately would be like, you know, benefiting some people more than others. It would still be good for folks, but industrial unionism means the strengths of all of us are shared, the weaknesses of all of us are shared. And it's like, in my opinion, the most powerful, most important form of union organizing today. Um, and that's how we approach it. Um, so for instance, at change.org, we recently organized we have software engineers, designers, support staff, campaign workers, you know, any range of things at another unit that we're organizing that isn't quite public yet, but in the next week or two, it'll be public. We've organized, uh, you know, engineers, designers, again, you know, people like communications and media experts. We've organized salespeople in this union wall to wall, right? So that's an example of industrial unionism. Is there, could you explain also briefly, is the industrial union shared across multiple uh, companies in this or organization, companies or organizations in the sense that like, it's not, you do the, the unit of bargaining ends up being the employees of an individual employer yes. and, and that employer, not like, like you could have a general CWA strike, right? But I'm guessing that's uncommon. It's very yeah. uncommon. And it, um, does the term general strike mean like all of the industrial yeah. unions in parallel? Not necessarily. So actually, I, you kind of can't define the, the term general strike. Uh, people refer to wildly different historical phenomena across many different cultures and times, all as general strikes, and they have wildly different means, right? So certain general strikes might be around political issues. Other general strikes might be around economic issues. Others might be um, about, you know, moving a certain key industry out of a, a region. There's been many different reasons for general strikes. And some have like per total participation of even like unorganized workers in a certain city. Some of them, you know, are only like a couple of the core, you know, groups of workers in a certain region, right? So anyway, that term is used, I think, very simplistically and poorly <laughs> by a lot of folks. Um, and it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, as for your question around industrial unions and, and kind of, is it actually industry-wide? Industrial unionism specifically, you know, the idea of it is to have a more unified industry-wide, sector-wide uh, labor movement. It, it's kind of one of the main reasons. However, 
you know, a lot of industrial unions organize company by company and they have, you know, company by company, different contracts. Now, I think the stronger unions will purposely leverage multiple employers to come to the bargaining table together um, in a similar like industry. Uh, I think a great example of that would be like SAG-AFTRA where, you know, multiple uh, production studios will come to the table together with SAG-AFTRA bargaining on the same terms and conditions across the whole board. That way, SAG-AFTRA- What is SAG-AFTRA? Oh, sorry. That's the Screen Actors Guild um, and American Federation of something. So the, the, the Actors Union SAG-AFTRA will bring all these different employers, these different companies to the table to bargain all at the same time. And it's, a, it's very powerful, but it takes a lot of power and leverage to get those employers to the table like that because they don't want to do that. They'd much rather actually be split up and they can play the union against different workforces, right? Um, in CWA, like SAG-AFTRA, we have organized uh, you know, instances where different companies in a similar industry uh, with similar types of workers will come to the same table and bargain. Um, it's not quite the same thing, but there's a, a, a phrase called like sectoral unionism, sectoral bargaining. It's very uncommon in the United States. It really doesn't happen. Um, we kind of approximate it sometimes when we get similar companies working together on you know one side of the table and the union on the other. Um, it's much more common in, for instance, like Western and Northern Europe, where um, you know actually by law it's required that all the employers in a certain industry sit with the appropriate union and workers in that industry to bargain over industry-wide conditions. Um, but we don't have that legal infrastructure to do that in the United States, so it doesn't really happen. It sounds kind of pseudo-governmental almost. It's like pseudo-governmental. It's like kind of a blend of union, capital, government, mediation or something almost. So craft unionism, <laughs> organizing around one discipline or trade, industrial unionism, organizing multiple workers of many trades all together, assuming they're working in the same company or industry. And then there's industrial or sectoral bargaining in organization, which formally happens in some countries, but in the United States, it doesn't happen formally, but you can get the companies together to bargain industrially in that way if you have enough leverage. Cool, yeah. I, I, I'd be curious to hear about your specific experience, I think in um, games specifically. Sure. Um, I, yeah, I guess to preface like, I, this is a top game, the game industry specifically is interesting because I, I personally grew up playing a lot of video games. Um, when you're little, it seems like it would be super cool to go and work in a game studio, um, work on something like a Call of Duty or like at Nintendo or something like that. It's kind of the sure. dream, although I never specific, it was never specifically my dream. It was something that like, you know, lots of kids are brought into coding for the motivation through the intention of like, oh, you can learn to make your own games. I think it wasn't until I arrived in the Bay Area and had met friends who had interned at, I guess it's Viacom mm -hmm. that makes Call of Duty. They they didn't Activision on like, Blizzard. Activision, there we go. Activision yeah. Blizzard um, on Call of Duty games, where they described that it's like the most toxic <laughs> or like you know like very bad uh, working conditions, over hours, etc. Um, that I realized that this is like a real 
kind of sore spot in or like a really difficult kind of subsection of tech um, with like a very different culture. But so, you know, I'd love to like talk about that and hear your experience with it. But I guess first, if you could just describe why did you decide to work in games? Like, did you, had you wanted to work in games for a long time? Uh, no, actually. Um, I mean, I played a lot of games growing up. Um, I had, no, I mean, everything from like Pokemon to, you know, modern warfare, um, things like that. Well, quite a wide range um, online MMORPGs, you know, RuneScape and such. Um, and it was a massive component of my life. Like it was probably the most intensive like media I would intake as a kid. Um, but I had no conception of like humans actually made these because <laughs> you kind of like walk into GameStop and it's on the shelf and you pick it up and the fairies must have put it there, right? I, you can't really conceptualize unless you have experience or special knowledge of the industry like how does this even come together what are the components that get put together to make something like this especially Whereas, like, if you don't understand software yeah totally it just it just seems like this thing that comes out of a box and that's it right whereas like with a film if i see a film it's like well i know there's someone with a camera and someone's like chopping the footage together you can kind of parse it right um so to me i never even once thought that workers are actually behind games. It was just not a, even a thought on my mind. Um, I went to university for film production actually. And there I met a lot of people who were in um, the games program. Uh, and over time, I just actually really liked the people in the games program. There were more queer people, folks of color. There were more people from you know lower working class backgrounds like myself, whereas there are not so uh, people uh, in the film production program. A little bit more egos and things so I ended up spending more and more time uh, in that part of the university when I graduated I had both a film degree and the games degree but I chose to primarily focus on games um, particularly just because that's where the people I cared about were that was where my community was um, I feel like tech and games in general is an industry where I think queer folks uh, get a, a little bit of an easier pass, I feel like at work. Um, not entirely, there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of other issues with the industry, obviously around social issues, but um, overall, uh, I just kind of moved in that direction. And, you know, it's been a mixed experience. I've worked on AAA games. Um, I've worked on small mobile games. I've worked indie, I've worked in VR. Um, you know, I've been a producer, narrative designer, QA tester, you know, a number of things. And so I've seen kind of a range of experiences at best, <laughs> at best, I was underpaid, uh, barely able to afford rent in an expensive city and, you know, just hoping we can finish work on time because it was so demanding. At worst, I had abusive bosses and, um, you know, people were denied crediting uh, in the games if they didn't stick through to the end, things like that. So it's definitely a mixed bag. Uh, and I know people who have, you know, much, much worse experiences, but um, yeah, that's at least a, a little bit of context in terms of how I got into the industry. I'm, I'm curious briefly, um, mm -hmm. what does, what is it like, what is the workflow of being a QA or like quality assurance <clears throat> in games? Yeah, I feel like <laughs> if you tell people you do quality assurance testing and video games, 
the vast majority of people either one will have no goddamn idea what you're trying to tell them and then if they do have some semblance they will think you sit at a desk playing video games all day which is right it's a risk of sounding like play testing yeah it sounds like play testing like i just come in and i play the games and and the developers like improve based off of what i do right and what the feedback i give but that is not the case um I think one of the best examples I give to people when I try to convey what working in QA really is like, it's like, instead of playing a certain level in a game, you are walking around bashing your character into like every single wall, every single corner, every rock, every tree. You're like trying to click on things like a hundred times to see if you can break that particular part of the game. It's not normal gameplay for the most part. You're trying to test the boundaries of the systems and trying to make sure you catch weird edge cases where things go drastically wrong or crash the game or what have you. Um, so it, it, it really is like, I would say a real discipline. It's a real craft and it should be seen as such in the industry. Um, even many QA testers don't see it that way. They see it as like a stepping stone to becoming an engineer or a designer or an artist, but it's actually a really developed skill set. Like you have to have a really broad, rich knowledge of all the different disciplines and, and kind of types of assets and things that go into a game. So you know even what to look for to try to break things and test things against each other. It's a very like analytical and puzzle solving job. And the actual hardest part about it is, is it's not just finding issues. You have to find a way to reproduce them because if you can't re reproduce them, the engineers can't reproduce them and they won't be able to fix it and find out what the problem is. So you have to be able to you know, stumble into some random thing that crashes your game, you have no idea what caused it. And somehow to like have to work back from like what small amount of information you had and log files and stuff and the footage you were recording, what actually went wrong. And that can take you days sometimes for really nasty bugs. Um, so anyway, it's a real discipline, it's a real skill set. And it is certainly not just sitting at a computer playing games, although we do our fair play of actually our, our fair share of actually playing them too, but it, that's not the bulk of the work. How much is that specific um, work? Is it, it seems, I could imagine that it's you, just because I'm, I'm curious and getting kind of a perspective of what's like working in this part of the industry. Mm -hmm. Is it you engaging with the game and trying to find the flaws or are you automating? I can also imagine it's you something like supervising policies that mm. are trying to run specific kinds of exploits or something like that. Like this That's is a, a little question. bit we wearing my AI hat, but it's like I could imagine <laughs> it being you like it might look nothing like playing the game, right? Like it could right. look a little bit like, okay, take this kind of cursor that in the game engine is rendered as though it's a player character. And I want you to like run it around the entire exterior surface of this like play world. Or it could it could be very like programmatic yeah. basically. It really can be. Um, there are QA testers, QA engineers, uh, QA automation engineers. There's like a, a kind of a range of different flavors of QA workers. Um, and yeah, uh, often there's a lot of like automated testing of uh, especially anything I feel like doing with menus or anything doing anything with numbers, you'll automate stuff to try to just like break the hell out of it by trying to make it do ridiculous, you know, uh, calculations and things, just like absolute edge cases. Um, so there is a fair bit of that stuff as well. So it's not just, you know, I have a controller in hand and I'm trying to 
mess things up. Like there's a lot of very specific targeted work that goes into it as well. But yeah, the it, it does vary a lot based off of what role you have. It varies by studio. You know, for instance, like there's, you know, there's been studios I've worked at where QA is very siloed. You don't have any interaction with other, you know, developers of any other skill set. And you just do the testing and you give that information over to them. There's no back and forth. I've also worked at studios where there's a ton of collaboration. You'll like constantly be talking to the engineers and artists, trying to work with them to triage what's going on. It's very collaborative. And I think you can do a better job in that kind of environment. Um, so anyway, there's like a lot of different variations on what it means to be a tester, but um, hopefully that's at least some broad context for roughly what it's like. Yeah. What, one thing that's coming to mind is one of my favorite bugs ever in a video game was, I remember, did you ever play Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so, you know, I remember, I only read about this, I think not even years later, maybe it was like one year after playing it, where there's the thing where the bridge in Hyrule gets destroyed as a plot, as a component of the plot right. by- I remember like the, the Goblin is like running across it or whatever on like a boar. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think, that, and then it became a Super Smash Bros. level. But the there's yeah. there was some there was some issue. This was like before I knew how to program. But my mind was like, oh, there's like there's something wrong with this that they should have figured out. Where you, it was something like if you crossed the if there was like an inconvenient moment at which you had saved where the bridge had been destroyed, but you hadn't yet gotten far enough away from it, then if you ever loaded the save again, you would appear on the wrong side of the bridge. Oh, wow. And then it would be like impossible, like you, the story would be, you because you can't cross the bridge because the cutscene has just destroyed the bridge and you're loading, yeah. reloading on the wrong side. And I remember thinking that was really interesting. Is this something that a cute, like quality yeah. assurance engineer should have caught? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and maybe they did, right? Because here's the other thing, a lot of people will encounter a problem in a game and be like, wow, the QA testers must really suck or the engineers must really suck. But there's also the question of like, sometimes you have so many fires going on, you have to put out the biggest and worst ones. And the ones that are pretty rare occurrences, like the one you just gave an example of, you might have to just deal with and ship it. Or maybe you're not funded well enough and you don't have enough people to solve the problems because the company is stingy. And so, you know, what goes out, what goes out. Um, that's a really good example of some of the trickier things about the job. Like I've had to play uh, a game where it was like a narrative game. And you know, it's about, I would say 20 to 30 hours into all told if you play through it, right towards the end of the game in the last section, there was a certain bug where if you triggered the bug, you know, it would essentially like delete a ton of memory from your save file and when you would try to load in, everything would be wrong and broken and different narrative states would be trying to fire at the same time. So like old dialogue would be saying things while the same character was trying to say something then and it just gets really gnarly. And so what you have to do is you can't just load into that level, it turns out when you test it. If you just load in, it's not gonna happen. You're not gonna be able to reproduce it. It requires playing the entire 20 hours of the game up to that point to reproduce in the first place. <laughs> and you might yeah. play those 20 hours as a tester and not get the bug. Right. So you have to do uh, it again, right? It's a brutal Can, can you save the sometimes. game state at the end of the 20? I, I would think that there would be something where you- I mean, you can. You can, fake, you can try and fake the game state or something. You can totally try to fake the game state. We do that stuff all the time. There's always like 
like debug keys that let you pop into certain levels like at different points in it. Um, but for some bugs, they only happen when you actually follow the real sequence of events and you want to make sure that like, yeah, it won't happen when a player goes through, even if it's really, really rare. Have you ever, has this experience of seeing the side of games ever made it unfun to play a game? So I could, I could imagine that if you have to go through 20 hours with this hat on, that then that game is like, because it would be, it would even be funny if you were going through the 20 hours and you get stuck somewhere in the game or you can't, there's some like, you know, boss you can't beat or something. It would be very strange. Yeah, I mean, doing QA work, definitely changes how you see games like I think it's similar to like I don't know I feel like in high school people always made like a joke of you know if you go through honors English you'll never enjoy reading again because you're just going to be breaking down all the different symbolism and stuff and you're not actually just enjoying the story um I think there's something similar there too where whenever you play a game you're going to be breaking it down in your head and thinking like well what's actually causing this and I'm curious like if you do this thing and that thing will it mess up whatever needs to come next or whatever um i think it, it i think it only ruins it for like games you worked on because you just know it's so inside and out in my opinion but the games can still be fun like i've done qa for uh, a multiplayer game where i just love the gameplay and i still play that game with like friends and things um it's still super enjoyable but you see all the problems that didn't get to get fixed and things it also makes me think of like uh, my partner they do environmental art for games and they will often when they're playing a game get distracted and just start looking at a bush or like yeah. a tree and trying to figure out like how exactly do they make this and that's a really weird way to shade the leaves or whatever and actually yeah. this turns out it's all just polygons and flat planes and stuff um so anyway it, it definitely does change how you approach the game i think yeah, I, I have friends who um, work on a game engine. It's a startup that's developing a game engine. They're, they've only worked on the engine at this point. They haven't built games with it. But long conversations with them about the industry and about speed tree and stuff like this did make me look at video games very differently from that point onward, realizing like there's a whole kind of economy of like different company. Like when you look at it, a landscape in a game or something like that, there's like literally different companies whose margins depend depend on like different things being hard about rendering the landscape. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, so then, you know, kind of extending beyond that, uh, what, you know, what are, what, maybe if you even go back a few years to like when you were first working in games, what are working conditions like broadly within the games industry and what's kind of the spread, you know, is it just Obviously, I told some horror story, not even specific horror stories about large companies, but in the news recently, I think Activision Blizzard has been in the news for like workplace harassment stuff. I, I don't know the um, details, but yeah, if you could just kind of summarize the culture and if it varies with big companies versus small companies or. I think there is a lot of variation. I think it's a little bit less about size of the company or what types of games you make, because uh, you know, there are certain indie studios or small size studios that are absolutely abusive workplaces. And you see like people not being paid appropriately and credited appropriately, um, people being kind of like financially trapped there. Um, really whack stuff happens in these smaller studios too. Um, I mean, not everything's a nightmare. I feel like whenever you, whenever normal people see the game industry in the news, it's always some you know, 
class action lawsuit or this person, you know, uh, had some kind of mental breakdown because of the strenuous conditions or, you know, 100 hour weeks are happening in a certain studio or whatever, right? Um, you know, it's not the everyday, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fine job, you know, in a lot of ways, but I think wherever you are, it's almost certain that like the culture is going to be some amount of toxic. Um, it's definitely a white male dominated industry. And um, it's just, yeah, sometimes it, it can be really difficult to make it through uh, certain studios in particular, um, even if you like the projects you work on. Uh, so, you know, in general, like I would describe like the games industry as like the worst of both tech and working in media. It's like the worst of both of those things. Um, and, you know, I think it's like the job instability and relatively low pay in media as compared to like your counterparts, maybe who work in tech. Um, and then like tech, there's like pretty toxic culture, lots of like bad startup situations, um, you know, extreme corporatism and monopoly <laughs> formation going on, um, you know, just kind of uh, some pretty rough stuff. So uh, anyway, yeah, I would definitely describe it as like the worst of tech and media. Um, but, you know, people have many different experiences. I have some friends who've never really had any major problems. Uh, I have other people who've had to, you know, leave the industry because it was such a awful, horrific experience for them. Um, and I think one of the most thing, one of the things that I think is most indicting of the industry is like the average game developer leaves the industry after five years. It's like five to seven years is the average burnout rate where people go off to do another job that is, you know, hopefully more stable or more fulfilling, or even if it's not more fulfilling, you know, at least you're not being, you know, uh, overworked and, and undercredited for the things you do. Um, so why is the games industry like this? <laughs> it's a really good question. I think part of it, it's a good question. I think a lot of it is like, you know, with any industry, companies are always going to, over time, trends toward cutting conditions, cutting pay, trying to increase their margins of profit and things, uh, skipping corners on games so that way they can, you know, turn a more efficient short-term profit, even if it long-term degrades the quality of their, their games and the work that people make and, um, you know, the following that they have over time. And there's a kind of an increased corporatization of the industry, especially in the last like 10 to 15 years, just there's just been a massive flood of like small and mid-sized studios bought up by, you know, uh, EA, Activision, Blizzard, Sony, um, and many of them get totally like destroyed and stripped for parts. Some of them get really watered down and no longer make the games that people used to like. Um, so that definitely impacts in a pretty negative way. And then, you know, I think it's a young industry. You know, I think about, um, you know, like the game, the games industry, I think mirrors in some ways the film industry. You know, in the 1920s uh, and early 30s, there's like a dream job is a relatively new thing. People would like go and leave, uh, you know, their communities behind to go to Hollywood or whatever and, and work in the industry. 
they were just grateful to have a job because it felt like they were doing something so exciting. But then over time, you know, there's a lot of bad conditions. There's no standardization of practices. Crediting isn't appropriate. There's not safety regulations for actors and, and workers on set and all kinds of different things, right? And so, you know, a couple of decades in, in the later 30s and 40s, and certainly into the 50s and 60s, organization comes into the industry in major ways. You see the vast bulk of the industry organized, whether it's, you know, artists, editors, set dressers, uh, painters, et cetera, all becoming organized uh, and fighting for better workplace and more professional workplace, one where they can practice their craft in a more effective way. Um, and so, you know, it, there's kind of like this pattern in a lot of new industries where the first couple of decades, it's a bit wild west, it's a bit chaotic sometimes, but as people have gone through enough cycles of seeing people leave and burn out or be harmed, we learn that turns out the industry we're in is not an exception. <laughs> like all other industries before it, there's been kind of like a, a golden period and then you know people get used to it and they wanna have a more regular professional environment. And I think that's where we're at now, right? Late 80s, 90s, thousands, you know, the industry kind of gets out of its baby phase, I would say late thousands and the, you know, 2010s, certainly now as we enter the 2020s, it's really become a more professional, stabilized industry in some ways. And I think people have seen enough cycles of people burning out and leaving and amazing studios crashing because of bad conditions and, and bad, you know, corporate practices that that's why you're seeing an emergence of interest in organizing uh, to make it a more, frankly, adult and more humane and more professional environment uh, for everybody. Uh, and I think it maps a similar experience uh, as the film industry had. Um, and I think tech also, I would say, mirrors the steel industry, which is maybe a weird comparison. <laughs> but I, I often reference the steel industry when I'm talking to people about tech, because, you know, back in the uh, 1910, 1920s, kind of early steel industry in the United States, it was completely unorganized. Um, and if you asked any, uh, really any labor leader, any worker, any businessman in the industry, if you ask them, you know, will unions, you know, finally appear and, and be organized in the steel industry, they would say no. The vast majority of people thought it was never going to happen. Again, including like organizers and labor leaders, um, you know, there were, there were like individual strikes and actions and things that would kind of pop up here and there, but there's no cohesive movement, right? Uh, but in the 30s and in the 40s, you see the mass industrialization of the industry coming to fruition. You're seeing mass industrial unionism in the industry, you know, massive companies falling to organized labor um, and workers being you know, just completely empowered on the job in a different way. Um, and what's funny is a lot of people who said steel could never be organized, they would say, you know, the workers are too well paid. It's too new of an industry. Uh, people really like working in the industry. Steel has like new management techniques that will make it impossible for workers to organize. Where have I heard those same things in technology? The workers are too well paid. People wish they worked in tech. You know, management has these unique, newfangled ways of structuring the workplace such that the workers will never organize. I hear that constantly, all the time. But 
I think we're entering that phase where you start to see the scales tipping towards workers wanting a voice, wanting democracy, wanting power in the workplace, wanting a say over their the nature of the kind of policies at work, the types of projects they take on, um, the ethical use of their labor, you know, career progression, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, all these different things um, that motivate people to organize to make a more quality and professional industry. I, I think we're following a similar pattern where you know, it, it's no longer a, a newfangled industry. It's not some baby darling in Silicon Valley. It's deeply embedded with all modern work and all modern industry. Technology is not separable from being a grocery store clerk, from being a teacher, from being a filmmaker. Technology is deeply interwoven with all these things. And it's such a bedrock industry for the modern world. And I think people are starting to see that we need to have responsible democratic worker voices in the space, having real power to shape it in a more meaningful way that isn't just about corporations monopolizing the space and extracting extreme amounts of profit by crushing typical labor rights and community rights. Got it. Yeah, all of that makes sense. I, I specifically really like the tying the, yeah, the analogy to the two seems incredibly clear. And when we've, you know, reviewed with other people, the history of um, steel organizing, it's funny, actually both SAG and um, steel have like come up many times, but I think really? that drawing the kind of parallel analogy to these two and to, to tech generally in the sub industry of gaming um, specifically, I, I, that's a really great analogy. Um, could you explain when people, um, when people like you uh, organize workers in the context of games, yeah. what are they asking for? So, you know, is it, it seems broadly unions want higher pay in general in most workplaces, but I'm sure that's a simplification. What, you know, yeah. what are the issues that are unique to labor organizing and the things that unions bargain for in the context of games specifically, and then maybe tech broadly? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I feel like often people raise the idea of like engineers or game developers being relatively well paid as a reason for why they wouldn't organize. But I would say even if you're making minimum wage at a coffee shop, if you organize, it's never just about like getting a pay bump. It's always about having a voice and dignity and respect at work um, and really having agency over your work life where we spend the vast majority of our days, right? Um, it's not just about getting a, a slightly larger paycheck. And so that's something that we really need to understand in games and tech that people aren't just organizing because they want a bigger paycheck, although they deserve one because for instance, uh, at Alphabet, the average worker creates about $1.5 million in value for the company each year. Is every worker making $1.5 million? No, they are not. So that means whatever they're not getting of that $1.5 million is being taken and given to shareholders and people like Sundar, right? Similarly, similarly in games, is it's the case. So, um, you know, I think you could argue for, you know, increased paychecks and things in the industry, but I think mostly, especially in games, the issues I see the most are diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, making sure that uh, more diverse folks are being hired, but not just being hired, but actually retained trained, moved up in their career and not just stagnating at the lower, you know, intro level positions and things. I see a lot of people wanting to organize uh, because 
they see the company as kind of ruining their product that they're working on, getting in the way of having a quality product and they want more say in the production process, for instance. Um, I know some people who want to organize, you know, around issues of crunch or, you know, serious overtime work, right? I think with that one, especially in the context of the games industry, I think a lot of people assume that people organizing would want to just end crunch and end overtime work, but that's not the case. Like, I think that's a, a very simplistic way to view the problem. The main problem is a lack of agency. I think it'd be great. You might want to explain yeah. what crunch time is also, yeah. Yeah, crunch is uh, a phenomenon in the games industry. It's also you know seen elsewhere, but that's where the term comes from. Crunch is when people engage in overtime work for extended periods of time, usually forced. Um, so, for instance, I've been in crunch periods where we'd be working, you know, like seventy or eighty-hour weeks. You know, every single day of the week, people coming in, people coming in on Sundays. <laughs> um, trying to get something out on the scale of weeks or months, right? It's not that uncommon, unfortunately, in our industry. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but unfortunately it happens in a lot of major productions. Um, and it's really, really awful on people's physical and mental health. Um, and frankly, it, it negatively impacts the games as well in terms of the quality of product because you've got these like half dead zombies making the games. Um, so how good are you going to be at your job when that's the conditions you're working in? So that's what crunch is. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about it as a problem, they are thinking like, well, let's just stop doing it. Let's not have it happen anymore. But I think it'd be much more appropriate to instead actually just give workers the control and agency to opt into it if they want, right? If you want to work overtime, if you want to maybe bring in some overtime pay, that's great. Go ahead and do that. But the problem is when it's like a systemic issue, when it's forced on people by the company, by producers or bad project management or what have you. Um, anyway, all these different issues are issues folks can fight for with a union, right? Um, I mean, for instance, if you care about pay equity in an industry where women of color make, you know, like 70% what a white guy makes in the industry, what better to end pay equity right at the source than you know, transparent, clearly negotiated pay scales in your contract that lay out, you know, if I work in this title, I have this amount of experience, I make this amount of money, right? There's no room for managers to discriminate and stuff in those kinds of circumstances. Um, you know, if you care about DEI, let's not just get vague promises every year from management saying, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter, and we you know, have this little token LGBTQ committee or whatever. Let's get actual metrics-driven, concrete diversity, equity, inclusion policies on the books in our contract that management has to meet in terms of hiring and retention and supporting people in the industry so they don't burn out and have to leave over time uh, due to attrition. Anyway, a lot of these issues are why people organize, at least in my experience, um, yeah, sometimes people don't think they're appropriate issues for organizing because it's not basic bread and butter paying conditions. But again, I would say any good union organizing is always going to be rooted more in qualitative things. Uh, you know, again, like having dignity, respect and voice at work, agency in your life, those kinds of things. And, um, and ultimately also, I would add that a lot of people want to organize around social justice issues 
which I think is really great. Um, I think people sometimes, like if you use the Activision Blizzard example, we'll see these as one-off events or bad, you know, actors or, you know, particularly bad studio. They don't see it as systemic, right? Um, and ultimately, we don't talk about the systemic causes of it. Systemic causes is economic stuff, right? Like if women and queer folks and people of color have more economically unstable conditions in an industry, they are much less likely to be able to stand up in the long term and improve issues around social matters. Um, if I'm having to run a calculation that I'm going to become, you know, one of those annoying queer people in the office by sticking up uh, against the transphobic content in the game we're working on, I might over time be like ostracized and pushed out of the company, right? If I have a union and if we've bargained a just cause clause in our contract where the company needs to have a just cause to fire me or lay me off, they can't just do it on a whim. They have to prove financial need or the fact that I was doing a bad job. I have so much more safety and bedrock from which I can fight for those social issues that I care about, right? So we also have to understand economic issues and social issues are intrinsically linked. And when we have systemic problems, whether they are about economics or social issues, when you have systemic problems, you need systemic solutions and not band-aids. And unions are systemic solutions to problems. So that's why I focus on them so much. What's the most prominent example of a games studio that has unionized? Like, is there some uh, example of, you know, could you could you walk through what what is like the biggest win for organizing specifically in the games industry been? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would maybe note a couple things. I would actually say like the most exciting development in labor organizing in our industry comes out of Sweden. Um, the workers at Paradox, uh, a studio that makes uh, some very popular games. I um, love Paradox. Oh, you like Paradox? Yeah. 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 They, uh, they organized, uh, you know, about a year, year and some change ago. I realized that. Um, yeah, they, they organized their, their Swedish uh, studio um, and it's some like 300 workers. They've are they're in collective bargaining right now. Um, it's such an exciting example of what can happen when workers work together and they can improve their conditions. And it's an interesting story too because, you know, in a lot of the accounts of it, workers really like working there. It's a great place to 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 be. It's a kind of a dream job. They love the games they work on, but they wanted to organize to protect it to ensure that it stays that way. And it doesn't just, you know, hopefully on the whims of management continue to be good, right? So it's kind of like this interesting example of preemptively organizing to, to ensure things continue to be good, right? So um, I think that's a really cool, interesting example. I would say like the riot walkout, um, uh, you know, was a good example where, you know, hundreds of workers, you know, walked out of the company uh, we should probably it. explain that Riot makes League of Legends, yeah. right? At least that's what I associate them with. Riot is a studio that makes League of Legends, among other things, um, a very popular game. And uh, the, the workers held a, a walkout where several hundred workers participated around the issue of, um, you know, abuse and discrimination and toxic workplace culture at the company. 
um, one of the things they were able to actually successfully win was an end to forced arbitration at the company uh, around issues of sexual assault and harassment and, and abuse, uh, where before there are many cases of people being essentially silenced by the company through legal action by forcing them into arbitration and not allowing them to go to court over issues that they faced. So um, this is something we also saw, you know, organizing at, for instance, Alphabet around and through some, you know, clever campaigning within the workplace, coupled with, you know, engaging with, for instance, Congress uh, to kind of look for legislative routes to solving the problem of forced arbitration at work. That pressure was a, you know, was able to win uh, a real concession from the company where they ended that practice. So anyway, uh, those are some examples I like. Uh, I think also, you know, there's um, some really good examples of organizing in South Korea. Uh, workers at Nexon, which is a major game company and publisher, um, have organized uh, their union and uh, have engaged in collective bargaining now for several years, actually. Uh, in France, uh, there are many groups of workers who are organized and have extended rights because they're members of unions, things like that. Um, in the U.S., we don't have yet a, a, a first unit that's officially certified organized, but we have you know, like the right walkout, many instances now where people have engaged in collective action, successfully won things on the job, some things being public information, some things not actually being public uh, at this point. Um, but it's, it's, there's a lot to be optimistic about, in my opinion, in terms of the kind of growing trend of organizing. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I guess the natural kind of question I'd have is, you can imagine someone who works in the games industry, um, or, or maybe who's interested, I think probably the most relevant thing would be someone who's working in the games industry currently, and they have, you know, they notice issues in their workplace. Um, and are they, some of the criticisms of the industry or toxic attributes of the industry that you're describing resonate with them as things that they mm. see in their workplace. What, what's the kind of first next step that they should take if because in the in this case the labor organizing is not explicitly about it seems like it's not at least about like distributing union cards um, and like getting to the point of holding a vote or something like that it's a more a sort of guerrilla uh, act like kind of like labor organizing landscape so I'm curious like if someone if this description of um, workplace problems resonates with someone what's the kind of next thing that they do or Honestly, I would say get in touch with me and my fellow organizers at CWA. Um, we work with many, many game developers across the US and Canada. We have relationships with folks in many different studios. There's many campaigns we've engaged in and, and some that are really exciting and I wish I could talk about. Um, I would really encourage them to reach out. Uh, they can literally go to our website, code-cwa.org. There's a you know contact and organizer form. I, I think it's really important even if people aren't sure if they want to organize, you know, to have a certified union and win collective bargaining rights, which I think you should, I think it's the strongest, most effective, most powerful way to address these issues we're talking about. But even if you're not sure about that, you should reach out, you should get organizer training from us, because there's a lot of really common red flags and pitfalls that people trip on when they don't have good organizing experience prior, right? There's a lot of easy mistakes people make when they try organizing for the first time. So I'd say get learned up, you know, talk to the experienced organizers, get some advice. 
Um, and then ultimately the work of organizing is actually very simple. It's really about kind of mapping out the workplace, figuring out how many people there are, what kind of job types, what social demographics, figuring out who knows who, you know, relationship mapping, uh, and really just having one-on-one -on -one organizing conversations where you get to sit down with one of your coworkers and you're kind of learning about what they care about, why they work at the company, you know, what issues they're facing, how work has been for them, how it's impacting them outside of their life, that kind of a conversation, you know, connecting on the issues, uh, connecting that back to, you know, we can solve these issues by working together, by working with our coworkers, by organizing a union together, we can actually have the voice and power necessary to actually fix these things. Um, and you build from there. So I would definitely encourage people to get organizer training, to reach out and get advice, to start with, you know, small one-on-one -on -one conversations and mapping. Um, I think a lot of people who don't know what to do and they're feeling very frustrated by the issue, issues in their studio or in the industry at large, they'll sometimes lash out and have really pent up energy and they'll want to do some kind of big petition or a letter to the boss or, you know, host, try to run a walkout or something when they actually don't have the relationships and organizing foundation to pull that kind of stuff off. And people only have the context of like strikes and walkouts and petitions and all these different things. Um, they don't understand that organizing 99% of it is actually just talking to your coworkers, you know, having organizing committee meetings, uh, you know, doing social mapping of the workplace. It's not all the fun, exciting, you know, news making events. And so people often make pretty serious mistakes by trying to get there too fast. Uh, and they kind of ignore the more difficult day to day, you know, more small scale work that makes up good, powerful organizing that can win on major issues. Yeah, that's a very long-winded answer. To no, no, like, I was, reach I was out and learn how to organize. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, because I was go originally going to follow up and ask, you know, what are those pitfalls? Like, because this could be a use useful, yeah. like PSA, you know, because yeah. you could imagine it could be bad, and that someone hears this, they get motivated, and then they go out and take one of those kind of like brash actions. So, is that yeah. the thing to watch out for? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think also, you know, trying to have these conversations in group settings where you're trying to talk about the idea of organizing with people, always a bad call. You know, don't have your organizing conversations over text or signal or company Slack or whatever. Have your organizing conversations in person, on a video call or by phone. You have to have that in that very personal in real time conversation where you can actually feel where that other person is emotionally and really connect with each other and kind of let your social barriers down a little bit because good union organizing is all about, again, really connecting personally on the issues, you know, building a real culture of support and trust and care amongst your coworkers. Um, and you just can't do that unless you're really talking to them as people. Um, and then, you know, I think there's also, <laughs> I've seen it many times at many studios now, I think sometimes, you know, quote unquote progressive, usually senior white, male devs will kind of refuse to do the meaningful work of organizing in terms of having conversations and meeting and doing that more you know day-to-day -day grind work of organizing they won't help their coworkers with that but instead they'll fire off in a all-hands meeting or on company slack or they'll shoot some big message about why everyone should have a union and blah 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 they think they're helping but they're not 
they're actually often really causing major problems for other people because when the company sees that stuff, they're not going to target the senior white male dev. They're going to go start looking for all the QA testers and marginalized people where they assume the rabble rousing is coming from. Um, and so, you know, I think oftentimes some of those types of people, the kind of more senior white male devs, uh, will kind of do this more individualist approach to trying to move the issue. And it's really actually counterproductive. It's not even just neutral, it's counterproductive to meaningful organizing. So again, talk to you know, actual organizers who know how to do this. You know, we've you know, won many campaigns before. We have collectively decades and decades and decades of experience in CWA in particular with union organizing um, and you know, actually learn what it'll mean to uh, do the work necessary to build a different culture where workers actually have support and voice and agency. Got it. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, yeah, so the main takeaway then there being like getting in touch with people who've done this before. Um, yeah. Specifically, there's going to be more kind of like behind the scenes grunt work than you think. Organizing is very much like, you know, to use the most lame metaphor on the planet, it's very much like an iceberg, like a very tiny amount of it do people see like, you know, the strikes and the news and the actions and the walkouts, that is such a tiny, almost insignificant sliver. And when those things happen, they're the culmination of a massive amount of conversations and talking and meetings and planning and strategy and learning and training and all these different things that culminates in those moments. Those moments don't spark meaningful organizing. They accompany meaningful organizing. I think people don't understand that. They think it actually goes the other way around sometimes. Um, so it's just so essential to understand that good organizing is personal. It's one-on-one, -on -one. it takes work. It's not exciting. It's like basic community building. That's what that is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm trying to imagine two kind of, or th there's two sorts of critiques that I can imagine someone either working in games or who generally is thinking about a career in games might have about like whether unions are relevant to them. Um, and I, I think they're like two, and the, these, this is a little bit influenced by people I know who actually work in uh, games or in software, and they go in kind of two different directions. One I would call like the pessimistic direction of this all sounds great, but the, the problems in my workplace are deeper and more cultural and less about things that I could explicitly bargain for. Um, and then a, an optimistic kind of critique, which might be something like the way out isn't unions, it is X new technology that I believe is going to like save my practice. And there's one specific example that's coming to mind there um, in the world of kind of blockchain stuff or decentralized autonomous organizations. But so we can go, or DAOs, so we can like kind of deal with each of these. Um, so I think the first one would be, I'm thinking of specific friends who work in software who, I, you know, I'm thinking of people at large tech companies, as well as kind of smaller, more social organizing kind of um, and software outfits that where they seem they they have a lot of the prop they seem to have a similar relationship to their workplace to what you're describing. Um, generally, they might be from like marginalized groups. Um, so there's like a variety of reasons that they might feel out of place in a very like white hetero, um, like male dominated kind of yeah. culture in tech. 
Um, and they seem, they may, might even in some cases have good relationships with their individual managers, which could confound their like, or kind of confuse, confuse the direction of their critique here. Yeah. Um, but they have a, a sense that like there, even if there is a workplace or some sort of union or labor organizing outfit in their um, job that like, it's not really addressing the, the problems that they have with their workplace. Um, and that they, you know, it's deeper and it's it's cultural and, you know, the union, while it can do a bunch of, you know, they might, I, I'm slightly, they haven't said this to me, but I can imagine they think, oh, the, you know, the union organizers, or the labor organizers, are those people over there that are like doing stuff for the media and like broadly working to, you know, improve our lot um, working for this large tech company, but it's going to take forever before that affects my direct work. And I'm still stuck here with like a yeah. bunch of kind of, uh, you know, older dudes who <laughs> like white uh, cis dudes who yeah. like might not understand me or something like that. That's obviously a characterization, but so I guess I'm, yeah, I'm curious what you say about this kind of like, yeah. the problem is too deep and cultural and like a union can't overnight wave a magic wand and change the like composition of my workplace to make me feel more like I belong here. Um, or something yeah. like that. That's a great question. Uh, and that's an interesting thing to kind of wrap one's head around. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen these kind of archetype people in my organizing and, and working experience. Um, I think to someone who believes that union organizing is good, but it can't really address cultural issues or social issues, I think I would just say that they're profoundly wrong. And that I would argue union organization and the density of union organization in any industry or region is the number one factor behind how progressive and accessible that culture is. Um, I would argue, you know, our material conditions shape what we think and what we do. It shapes our culture um, and not the other way around. And so I think if you can affect the material conditions, you can affect the culture, right? that superstructure of culture is built on the you know, primary structure of the economics and the, the concrete relationships, right? So um, you know, I think a, a great example would be, <clears throat> actually I was just talking to a, a friend of mine, a fellow organizer who grew up in the South uh, and they were saying um, you know, uh, where they come from you know, in this kind of rural area, there's only uh, you know, uh, two places that are not segregated. It's uh, homeless shelters and the union hall. Those are the two places that aren't segregated where they come from, right? Schools are segregated, housing is segregated, transportation is often segregated, not the union hall, not yeah. the homeless shelter. And I think that's such a great little anecdotal example of why Union organizing is so essential. It's one of the few places where it brings people of all different stripes together. Um, and I don't say that in like a fluffy, rose-tinted glasses kind of way. I, I mean, in a concrete way, um, union organizing really does make a space more accessible and progressive and, and help improve the, improve the culture like nine times out of 10. Um, and there's historical empirical evidence of this and uh, really good historical work on this phenomena in particular. Um, and I would say, you know, the reason for this, you know, again, like I mentioned before, 
you know, if you can improve economic stability and conditions for marginalized people, that will allow them and others to improve the fight on, for the social issues that they might care about, right? Economics and social issues are directly linked. There's also this other thing, which is that out of pretty much all forms of organizing, all forms of activism, all forms of you know, typical making change, union organizing by its very nature requires bridging the divides amongst the working class. By its very, very nature, you cannot organize a union in your workplace unless you have a majority or supermajority of support. And unlike in all other forms of organizing, it's not opt-in. I don't pick my coworkers. It's not a social club. It's not, you know, it's not a smaller subsection uh, group around a certain identity or a certain experience. Those spaces are valuable too, of course, but union organizing requires us to go out and organize our coworkers no matter who they are. I'm a trans woman, I'm a queer trans woman from a low working class background. I have had to organize far right people who hold very transphobic, very homophobic views, right? People who've been hostile in the workplace. I've had to go and organize them because I didn't get to pick my coworker and I needed them to get to that majority where we can make change and not change, not just for me and for the people I care about, but for them too. There's things they can benefit from the process of organizing. Whether you're a white guy, senior developer who wants to improve things around maybe like career progression or uh, you know, the quality of the game or having more say in the product or you know, better crediting practices, or I'm a queer woman who wants to organize around diversity, equity, and inclusion and pay equity, both of our issues can benefit from working together and organizing a union together because those issues aren't in competition. They can be empowered by linking them up, right? And that's like the real weight and power behind union organizing. That's why it's so deeply valuable. So it's that inherent nature to union organizing by its very essence requires bridging these gaps amongst us. Um, and not in like a fluffy liberal way, not in a let's all hold hands and magically the world will be care bears and rainbows and sunshine. It's very concrete. It's very, you know, rooted in the material conditions. Um, so that would be my, that'd be my very long-winded, you know, response to someone who thinks that union organizing cannot address really deep found, fundamental cultural issues. Um, one of the coworkers I just mentioned, you know, someone who is very transphobic, very far right. Um, when I was organizing in that workplace, my coworkers on the organizing committee told me not to talk to them. We were going through our social mapping and we we're like, okay, you talk to this person, you talk to this person. This conservative person's name came up and everyone was like, oh, we should not talk to this person, save them for last. They'll definitely be a big problem. Immediately, that was a flag for me that I need to go talk to that person actually. Um, and I'm so grateful I did because you know we connected on the issues because it turns out we're in the same workplace. We see the same problems. Um, we could put some of the other politics and identity and background aside for the moment and connect on the, the shared stuff. And he got involved with organizing. And over the course of many months of organizing, his politics shifted far to the left. His view in terms of social issues wildly improved. He became a much more open-minded, uh, caring person to folks that he didn't share an identity with. Um, 
And that happened because of the organizing, right? So that's just one anecdotal example from my life on how profound that is. And 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 I'm this isn't to say everyone should go out, you know, if you're a black person and you have a coworker who's racist, you don't have to go talk to that person, right? If you're trans like me and you have a transphobic coworker, you don't have to be the person to go talk to them. You know, I did in that one instance instance, but you know you got to make sure you're in a position that you feel comfortable doing that. But the point still is, it doesn't matter who that person is. They're in our workplace and we can't improve our stuff until they're participating too. And so maybe we send, you know, a senior white guy organizer to go talk to them, but it's important that we do that all the same. And I've seen a lot of people who've reached out to me and other organizers for help organizing their workplace. And they say they want to organize a union and, you know, Often union campaigns are started by marginalized folks. And I've seen numerous times where folks don't want to talk to their, you know, cishet white coworkers because it stresses them out too much, or they think they'll never be supportive, or they just want to talk to the other marginalized folks in the company or the studio or whatever the context is. And I really sympathize with that. But if that's how you're going to approach organizing, you will never, ever, ever have a union in your workplace. It's just, it's just, it'll be impossible. Um, you can do some amazing things by organizing your community. You can, and you can make some real impact, but you'll never have the power and agency and control that workers with a union have. So that's my, my very long-winded answer to that kind of segment of people who have that concern around. Yeah economics versus culture to the other one that's more technical. I, than, I yeah. can explain, yeah, I can explain yeah. the other uh -huh. one for kind of preface how I think about sure. it. One quick question I have about that. Yeah. So that, that's a fantastic call for like, or that I at least find that very inspiring, this idea of union, unions are kind of union organizing, labor organizing is a microcosm of democracy in general, right? Yes. And coalition building, it forces you to reach out to people or at least send uh, you know, representatives and agents to people who you would otherwise disagree with to find the issues that you can come together on that yeah. affect all of you. My impression from some of our conversations, this is a, this is maybe a little bit like litigating something that's slightly in the weeds <laughs> about what you were saying, but my impression from conversations that we've had on the history of union organizing is that mm -hmm. like the influence of, un of unions or labor organizing uh, as a vehicle for at least at least racial equality if not like um like progressivism or something in general social progress in general is like at least mixed where like in some sure. cases unions have been used as kind of vehicles for like the example i'm thinking of is like specific groups of white immigrants in yep. like specific industries to exclude people of color or that there is a like sub or exclude other immigrants in coming from like Eastern Europe. There's a lot of examples of like in the 1910s, we had had a wave of like Irish and Italian workers come in in the, you know, 18, I think 80s and 90s, and they were well-established workers, you know, with their unions. And then when a bunch of Eastern European folks come in the 1910s and 20s, they fight to exclude them from the workplace, from their union, all that stuff. It happens, of course, like you mentioned, uh, to communities of color as well um, throughout the history. Uh, and it's true, like union organizing, labor organizing has a very mixed experience on this stuff. Um, I think also the problem though is you have to look at the material conditions in which those people existed, 
I certainly would never in a million years excuse that stuff. At the same time, that kind of exclusionary organizing was happening. You also have some of the most integrated, profound progressive spaces um, in other unions at the same time, right? So we definitely need to critique those uh, more uh, conservative approaches to organizing. But if you look at the material conditions, especially in those kinds of instances, we didn't have industrial unionism yet. And that's one of the major factors. Industrial unionism is a much more progressive form of organizing by its very nature than craft unionism. And craft unionism by its nature kind of is inherently a bit more narrow focused, more focused on the economics and has a little bit less relation to the social stuff, although it still relates. Um, so I think the more and more we move into modern industrial organizing, the more and more we do see like a very tight linkage between uh, social progress uh, and, and labor organizing. But you're right, it's a mixed bag. And also you have to look at like, for instance, like police unions, which are essentially, I would argue like mafia rackups where, you know, these people with a monopoly on violence are organized amongst themselves to better execute on that, right? Not great. I don't like that. <laughs> and I don't want them in my movement. <clears throat> but again, you do have to look at the history. You have to look at the numbers too, and not just, you know, some of these exceptional things that uh, might not actually reflect where we are today, day to day, right? Um, like today, the labor movement is increasingly less and less white, less and less male. In fact, the major demographics organizing in the last few decades are black women and Latinx women. Not your, you know, male stale, uh, kind of pale, whatever what they call it. People say like pale male stale uh, union membership or whatever. Um, it, it's a much more diverse set of people because the workforce is also more diverse. Um, and uh, so again, shifting material conditions shifts the nature of the organizing. Where we are now, the conditions that underlie our organizing leads to bolstered social progress um, as a whole. And uh, I would recommend people read uh, things like Hammer and Ho, which is a great example of white organizers, you know, working with like uh, communities of color to, you know, organize for really radical changes, really radical social progress in the deep south. Uh, books like The Southern Key have a really great history of organizing in the south in particular, how progressivism relates to union organizing and where you see a greater density of union organizing, you see, you know, uh, you know, even like socialist and progressive uh, people in mayoral offices, people running for governorship, uh, you see uh, way stronger uh, uh, integration uh, across a community, right? There's a really great example actually in Southern Key, there's a, an, a story of uh, essentially an all white union local coming to defend a black community um, uh, town from the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan. Like the KKK was coming to town to harass a specific community and a white union local from a neighboring community came in and like with their bodies, like putting them in between was like helping to protect that community, right? Um, and there's instances also of like communities where there's extreme racism and, and segregation where after a mass union organizing drive, where you know a number of people organized, the community completely shaped, shifted in terms of its politics and culture. So 
anyway, there's there's a lot there. <laughs> we could probably talk for like 20 hours about this. It's a really complicated and, and, and deep subject that's really important. Um, and it's especially important to look at the problems that you highlighted in terms of like a lot of the racist past and present in the labor movement, because we have to be very frank about what the problems are so we can actually address them and exercise them. Um, the last thing I will note, if you look at the numbers, uh, if just over the last few decades, um, a really good book I would actually reference would be What Unions No Longer Do. Essentially, it looks at a bunch of statistics from the Labor Department, breaks down what it means for certain social demographics and you know, changing factors in the, in, in the workforce uh, in terms of what it means to organize. And one of the things it really clearly shows is like actually women of color and black folks um, in particular benefit the most from union organizing compared to their white counterparts in the same roles and in industries. Because when the floor of conditions and pay raises, it might raise a little bit for the, you know, the white male worker, but for like, for instance, black women, it raises way higher that change is so radically different. And I would argue union organizing is actually most beneficial <laughs> to those who are most marginalized in a certain workplace or industry. Anyway, another long-winded answer to a good question. No, oh, yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I get, okay, so yeah, then I, ha taking that, I think um, now I'd be interested in talking about this kind of like optimistic rejection of what you're saying or optimistic critique of what you're saying. Um, you know, I don't, I almost on some level, I'm familiar, I've worked on a, like a, a little bit on some cryptocurrency projects. Um, I've been like socially adjacent to people working on a number of um, cryptocurrency and like blockchain applications. Yeah. My sense is, you know, this is one very specific technology that someone might kind of take today during the last three years and say, this is going to solve my labor problem. I can imagine other technologies um, and, you know, we're, like I said, we're going to dedicate one entire episode at least to looking at AI as an example of that. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, if someone says, uh, this, this probably is someone who would be outside of a formal workplace, right? So they, maybe it's a freelance worker or someone who's just thinking about technology in general saying, researcher. yeah, the, the, the future of organizing for these technologies this is this is one example narrative I could imagine. Um, yeah, would be the the future of organizing around working on these kind of technologies is not for us to you know where we should be putting our effort is not to get um, the owners of capital and you know people even managers at these large companies and VC generally like convince these. Uh, corporate entities that have been influenced by the VC model, right? Where there's some return they're needing to generate to shareholders. What we need instead is for creatives and artists to come, we now have the technology that they can come together of their own accord and work on uh, creating the kind of content that they want on the internet using, I, you know, the example I'm thinking of is DAOs, so decentralized autonomous organizations. Sure. The space is very new. It's ambiguous yeah. exactly what that means, but you can imagine it's something like a, you know, if you squint, maybe it's a union organizing the uh, creative kind of process for generating something like a game entirely by itself. You know, if you were to try and use an analogy for like, blockchain organizing and like traditional labor organizing. It might be something like that. You know, why do we even need um, managers? Why not like set up, why not quit your job, get on a discord 
<laughs> try and make a game with your buddies online yeah. in, a, in some kind of organization that compensates you by some predetermined algorithm. Uh, sure. Yeah, obviously this isn't necessarily mutually exclusive with labor organizing, but I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on kind of the decentralized critique of these, the, this format of workplace in general. Yeah. Um, well, I would start by noting if someone says, well, why don't you leave your workplace and, you know, reinvent the wheel somewhere else with your, your buddies on a discord that reveals a lot about their class nature. Yes. That, reveals, <laughs> that reveals that they are a very economically stable person with the luxury of being able to go and do that. So that's yeah. one thing. The other thing I would really say is like, I think, okay, I have a couple more thoughts. Um, you're kind of almost broaching the subject of like worker co-ops and unionism and where do they overlap, where they conflict, where can they complement each other? Um, I, I would argue worker co-ops and unions are in the same movement. Both exist to give power and agency and democracy directly into the hands of the workers. The problem is, I think a lot of times with people who are very focused on technical solutions to social problems is that you can't design your way out of the problem. We can't design a good enough system or a perfect enough arrangement or perfect way of structuring human beings to work on a project. You can't find your utopian solution and just have it happen. We don't live in a world where we can jump from one reality to suddenly having completely different material contexts and relations. Put people from a normal workplace where power is top down into a worker co-op and they won't have the skill set and understanding to effectively run their democratic organization. There's a reason why many worker co-ops actually have like a trial period where new workers aren't owners actually. They'll be like, you know, uh, like candidate owners because they have to learn what it means to actually have control and say in their workplace. And um, it takes, you know, a real learning curve. And so I'm really skeptical when people think we can just transplant people into a new system and suddenly it works because people come with so much prior experience and baggage and ways of understanding themselves and how they work, right? So that's one thing. Um, I do think it is great to find ways in which workers can have control over you know, the ways in which they conduct their work in the direction of their company or you know, organization or whatever, um, whenever possible, let's do that stuff. In the meantime, we have millions and millions and millions of human beings who cannot do that. They can't just step away from their job. They can't just go and found Google, but this time it's a worker co-op. You just, people can't do that. We don't live in a world where that's possible. So in the meantime, we have to do some serious union organizing. I, I feel like I encountered some people who are a little ultra left sometimes who in an organizing space will be like, well, why even organize a union? Why don't we just turn our company into a co-op? And I'm like, you think turning your company into another form of legal entity with a completely different set of social relations where suddenly now you and everyone else is in charge, you think that's an easier lift than union organizing? You think you can just jump to that? It's like the people who tweet general strike, but they can't even organize a fucking block party. 
let alone millions of people to go on strike in a major American city. It's just utter silliness. And, and you, can, you can appreciate where they're at and what they're thinking and the motivations behind the things they're saying and doing, but it's so wildly detached from reality. And so for me, that's the primary critique here, right? We have to look at where we're at now in material contexts and move it in a, in a way that actually fits with the logic of reality and not just cutting and pasting to the thing we want. And so that's why union organizing is powerful because it's struggle. It's a struggle between that ideal world we want to have where workers have real democracy and say, because even having a powerful union, even the most powerful, most democratic union is not workers having direct control over their workplace. It's still a compromise and a struggle between the bosses who ultimately own the company and the workers. Now, maybe you could at some point have so much leverage and power, you can leverage you know, turning the company into a co-op. There's actually examples of that historically. Um, and also entire countries that have effectively done that. But, um, you know, in the meantime, <laughs> you know, union organizing is going to be a complicated struggle between the things we want in our head and the reality that we live in where we have no power, no voice, no control over our culture and the way in which our company runs, right? And we have to move a couple steps ahead and not a thousand steps ahead, right? So anyway, this is, a, this is a dynamic I encounter somewhat frequently, usually from upper middle class folks in the industry, uh, usually from white people, usually from men, where they want to just have a technical solution to social issues and unfortunately completely ignores the reality that their coworkers are in. So that is my long but also truncated way of maybe uh, talking about that. Um, but it's an interesting conversation. And I think, you know, DAOs are kind of an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I don't know. Union organizing is not abstract. It's not systems design. It's a systemic solution, but it's not systems design. What it is, is a struggle for power. Whatever you're struggling for, whatever issue you want to improve, whatever group of workers are involved, at the end of the day, it's people coming together to try to have some power in their lives over their workplace. And that's not abstract. That's not a problem you're gonna think through. It comes through trial and error and messy social interactions. And you're never gonna design your way to having power, right? So that's, that's, that's my thoughts on that subject. Yeah, totally. Um, th this is, I have to, throw out just a, a totally haunted follow-up <laughs> question. Is there any software that you like for labor organizing? <laughs> um, I like Google Docs. We <laughs> like throw me on an Excel spreadsheet. That's that's organizing. I um actually it's funny. Uh, in, in an organizing committee that recently wrapped up one of their campaigns, um, one of the workers after the campaign kind of ended and, and the dust settled was like, I think I finally understand what union organizing is. And I was like, what? And they were like, it's looking at spreadsheets and talking to my coworkers. And I, I was just so proud in that moment because that is true. It's not strikes, it's not picket lines, it's not reading Das Kapital or whatever. It is looking at spreadsheets and it is talking to your coworkers. I tell people all the time, I just met with a new group of workers last week. Um, who wanted to learn how to do good organizing. 
Um, and they're asking all these questions like, how do we do this? How do we do that? You know, do we need to be thinking about legal stuff, you know, communication stuff, blah, blah, blah. And every time I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. What you should do is take a sticky note and write all your coworkers on your team and start thinking about who knows who <laughs> and what issues they care about and starting to talk to those people. And they'd be like, yeah, no, that makes sense. But like, should we go do X, Y, or Z? And I'd be like, no, the thing you need to do is actually write down a list of your coworkers and talk to them. And they'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll do that. But also like, here's a question about some extraneous legal process under US labor law. And I'd be like, yeah, here's your very simple answer. However, you should go write down a list of your coworkers and talk to them. Like you just can't hammer that home enough. That's how you do organizing. Have you ever used Salesforce for this? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what a what just a horrible question you've asked me. Um, no, I have never used Salesforce for organizing. I suspect it could be interesting. Um, you know, I, I've played around with a lot of things. You know, uh, we've used like Excel, you know, Google Docs, Google Sheets, uh, Airtable. I think is particularly useful. It's a it's a good middle ground between a little too complicated but powerful and simplistic enough where people can actually use it in a practical way. That's where a lot of people I work with go to now, that or Google Docs. But, you know, I've also seen people use like dedicated software, things like Action Builder, Action Network, Mobilize, um, you know, uh, Van, things like that, Blue Stripes, a number of different things. But at the end of the day, the main thing I, I tell people all the time is like, you could have a, a, pen, a pencil and a piece of paper and do the same organizing work. It's it's not gonna make your organizing magically happen or do it better. Um, organizing is all that social messy interaction and that human stuff, that emotional stuff. Um, and there's just not a technical solution. And, you know, especially the last couple of years, we've seen a rise of these like startups around, you know, making a platform where workers can organize or unionize, I say in quotes, um, you know, I think things like unit or Frank or coworker, you know, these things I think have value. There's value to these, but sometimes it like teaches the wrong lesson to workers if they're not being properly coached where they think there could be a, a, an easy technical solution to organizing. And the truth is there's not, you can use those softwares that can be helpful but it's not going to make the process of organizing any easier or any more powerful, any more effective. You still have to do that really tough, messy work. And for that, you need advice from people who've done it before, like myself and other organizers and other workers who've done this. The best thing you can do to help yourself is talk to people who've gone through it before and learn directly from them because that's something no software package is going to offer you in terms of making you a better organizer. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Emma. This was wonderful. Yeah, this was fantastic. Yeah, of course. Um, um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I know it was like kind of all over in terms of subject matter. Um, but yeah, if you have like other questions or things you want to talk through in the future, just like let me know. We can always yeah, yeah. take a little time. Uh, you, you mentioned like eight different categories on which I probably could have talked for like three hours a piece at the top of the conversation and um, I would love to dive into those. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's funny. I'm even interested in learning more about quality testing in games. Yeah, like way <laughs> back to the beginning. Craft. It really is. Yeah. yeah. It was um, yeah, it was definitely a very interesting conversation. Uh, 
much more interesting than most I have to have. So I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, totally. I'm glad. All right. Well, thank you so much.